Hi, Filmatics. Welcome to the show. Today we have an extraordinary guest. We have Brooke Watchell. I hope I said that right, Brooke. He's an Emmy award-winning screenwriter, producer, and author. His latest novel, Lady Sherlock, Circle of the Smiling Dead. But Brooks is known for some extraordinary animation like Spider-Man, X-Men, Iron Man, Silver Surfers, The Adventures, and even uh, his uh, documentaries. Uh, so he's going to talk so much about that. So let's welcome uh, Brooks on the show so he can tell you about all his shows that he's been on. Hi, Brooks. Hi, Marilyn. How are you this morning? <laughs> I'm great. And I uh, just want to thank all of our listeners for come, listening. And Brooks, can you let everyone know where you are where we're recording with you today? I'm in West Hollywood above the Sunset Strip. Oh, I love the Sunset Strip. That's so beautiful. So you probably have a nice view of the city. I have a lovely view of the city and I, I enjoy the sun. I enjoy Sunset Strip. I certainly revel every time I'm stuck there in traffic and not moving for an hour. How beautiful the architecture is. <laughs> Yeah, that traffic on the Sunset Strip. Um, I remember living up Sunset Plaza Drive, and um, and that's the time when I didn't have a car, so I had to walk all the way down that curvy hill. And I good exercise. Yes, it was very good exercise. I stayed in good shape. <laughs> and, um, so, Brooks, um, where did you grow up? Well, I was a Navy brat, or I guess uh, technically a service dependent. So we traveled around a lot. I was born in Washington, D.C., but because father was a career naval aviator, we moved every two years. My, my younger brother was born in Trinidad. My sister was born in Coronado. We lived in Key West, Pensacola, Carmel Valley, Virginia, New York, and uh, Coronado. Oh, wow. Um, my father retired while we were in Coronado, and then we moved up to Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, we, Brooks, uh, Brooks, we had spoken earlier that we both have the Navy. Um, the, my father was a Navy uh, pilot, aviator, and so we have that in common. So, uh, Brooks, I want to just, um, you, when you were 16 years old, can you share us how you came about making these student films? And one was a Sherlock Holmes spoof done in period? What? Yes, I've always loved period stories. I've always been a Sherlock Holmes fan. And when I was a student at Hollywood High School, I was doing student films. And uh, my friend Kim Traeger and I wrote one called The Ghost of Bloomberry Hill, and we filmed it one summer at the fairly newly opened Hollywood Magic Castle. Milt Larson was kind enough to let these kids in during the day during the summer on the provision that we left before the club opened and we filmed this 16 millimeter Sherlock Holmes spoof. Wow, that's incredible. You guys were filming or your group of friends were filming at the Magic Castle. Oh, that's so magical that place. I've and been like yeah, I'm sorry, I cut you off, you were going to say. Oh, it's really fun in there, very magical. I was invited by um two twins. They were like English with long red curly hair, and they invited me there. It was really fun. Well, we were shooting there, and as I wasn't driving yet, my folks would pick me up. They'd been there once before. They became enchanted, and they joined as non-magician members. 
I started going in on their number and eventually I learned magic, became a magician member. And with my good friend, Lena Poussette, who's a writer, actress, and a magician, we did a magic act and played the main theater at the Magic Castle many years ago. Wow, you became a magician? What was your magic? Did you have magic tricks? What was your specialty? Mostly I do close up because they're a lot, it's a lot easier tra to transport a deck of cards than a large illusion. And cards, unlike doves, don't do messy things in your pocket. Oh, I love that. So you, so, so I do, I do have, I do have a head chopper. <laughs> or if I need to do a stage, if I need to do some stage type illusions, I have a head chopper. I love that routine. Uh, I will, I will caution any beginning magician who does the head chopper. Don't do it over carpet. Don't, don't do the head chopper over carpet. Now that just gave my mind like, wow, you did the head chopper. That's intense. That's a good, that, those kind of tricks are just like, wow, how'd they do that? Very well and carefully one hopes. <laughs> and not on the carpet. So okay. not over mostly I do cards. I mostly do cards. I love that. So, um, Brooke, so then uh, you're in high school at Hollywood High School. And then, um, then how did you go on this journey? Like, oh, can you share with us one of your, uh, some of your favorite films growing up? Oh, good heavens. <laughs> and we only have, we only have an hour. I mean, I have so many favorite films, so many that were influenced. Uh, just, I said, I just did a podcast on two of them with my friend, Steve Rubin. He has a pod, if I can plug him, if that's okay. Sure. He has a podcast called Saturday Night at the Movies, and Steve is a film producer, film historian. And we did a podcast talking about the George Pal versions of The War of the Worlds and The Time Machine. Oh, excellent. I love that. Those are two extraordinary films, too. They are magnificent. But one film that had a big influence on me, and I found out had a large influence on many others in my generation, was 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, the Disney film. Oh, Yeah. I, I saw it as a little kid. I, I was just enchanted by it, entranced by it. And later on, as an adult, I got a a model of the Nautilus, Harper Goff's design. And so many friends of my generation in the entertainment industry, when they saw it, said, that was the film I saw as a kid that made me want to go into the movies. Wow. Did you ever go? I remember going on the, there was a ride in Disney World that you could go. I went on that ride. I remember that as a little child going in a submarine and then under the water. Well, that was, a, that ride, it was the Disney World version of the Disneyland submarine cruise, but it was themed more where the Disneyland ride is themed toward modern atomic submarines. The Disney World ride was themed as 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, and the narration had a James Mason sound alike. But what you, you are too young to remember is that when Disneyland first opened for the first 10, 11 years in Tomorrowland, you could walk through the sets of the Nautilus. They, take, they took the sets and made a wa uh, circular walkthrough. Oh, would open up and the giant squid was there and they had some of the miniatures from the movie and i mean you could just walk through those incredible sets when they read it tomorrowland in the 60s they demolished all of it save one piece oh man well i well i was in florida because i went to university of florida so we were in disney world so but um so you were so because you were in la and i was in florida so um yeah but i just remember going underwater and looking in the little submarine window 
there, it's the same ride as the Disney event submarine voyage, and you aren't actually underwater. You're in a deep hull ship. They don't submerge, but it's a cool ride. Then <laughs> the one piece, the one piece that they saved, is still in Disneyland, and that was the keyboard and casing of Captain Nemo's organ, and that can be found in the haunted mansion's ballroom. The ghost playing the organ is playing Captain Nemo's organ, not not the pipes, but the organ itself. Oh, oh, oh that's kind of twisted. <laughs> A bit of useless trivia for you. Oh, I, but that's really interesting. So, you, so twenty thousand under uh, twenty thousand leagues under the sea was your inspiration, and then did you go to college, or how did you 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 did the no, Sherlock Holmes I movie? Mean, I, I was a little kid. That's what got me started. But there were many, many other movies that affected me. Yeah. Do you do you have a favorite Criterion movie that you love? Oh God, um, you know, so many. I mean, you, you can't name one. You know. The, by the way, the Criterion new Blu-ray War of the Worlds is just fantastic. It's the closest you're going to get to seeing what it looked like in Technicolor. Um, oh. So many films. Um, films that made you think, like some of the Stanley Kramer films, Inherit the Wind, Judgment of Nuremberg, On the Beach. Uh, stylized films like Joseph von Sternberg's The Scarlet Empress. I loved horror movies like the original Dracula and Frankenstein. Um, uh, yeah, historical movies like A Night to Remember about the Titanic. Just so many, so many great films. Uh, oh. It's a mad, 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 mad world and the great race. Two very funny comedies. Oh, yeah. And then how did you uh, how did you start like writing, producing and directing? Did you go off to college? Did you? I think I always I always knew I wanted to do that from the time I was a kid. And so I started doing student films. I did take filmmaking in college. But I, I think, you know, it was just doing the student films and transitioning. And when I was, I was in my 20s, we actually uh, got a feature going. It, it had a rough history and never really got a full release. But I, I did a feature called The Goddess of Death, which I'm hoping to actually get out there now that there's more markets. Even though it's an older movie, it's a period piece, so it doesn't show so much. And I, you know, I, I did that film and, and it was because of never getting out and release in life. I went in one year from motion picture writer director to all night part-time answering service operator, which was a rather severe career adjustment. And eventually you know, I started writing and trying to sell scripts and I had an agent that sent my work over to Filmation Studios. Now I'd already had a taste of animation because right out of high school, I draw and I briefly did storyboards on Filmation Star Trek. Oh, incredible. So you worked on Star Trek? That's amazing. Uh, the, the animated series, very briefly. But I started doing storyboards, and uh, my, my late friend, a wonderful artist named Sherman Labby, would, through the years, if he heard of a storyboard job he didn't want to do, would you know throw it my way. So I did storyboards for commercials and movies and I think the beginning, I did the beginning of Rage in Harlem, I, I storyboarded. So I'd done storyboards. But anyway, this agent sent a feature script of mine over to Filmation. They were planning to remake Pinocchio, which, and this was the very Aww. beginning of the VHS era. And I thought that was a tremendously dumb idea. I mean, you're not going to compete with Disney's Pinocchio, one of the great films of all time. But I got a, I had a meeting there. I met with a guy named Robbie London. And uh, while they didn't hire me, he sent my script over to the episodic people. 
and they were doing a show called Filmation's Ghostbusters. Not based on the movie, but based on a live action series with Larry Storch and, um, oh God, the name's just out of my head, the two stars of that troupe. And uh, so I sold a script with a co-writer and then we worked on She-Ra, which I loved because I love strong female characters. My co-writer decided he didn't want to do it anymore. Robbie London went to a, a studio called Deke, which was doing a ton of shows. He called me and said, here's the names of a bunch of showrunners, story editors. Tell them I told you to call. He was an exec. They took my call. And I started selling scripts to a show called Dinosaurs. And from there, I just started doing more and more animation. Dinosaurs. I love it. And, um, and uh, you have so many shows like... Uh, um, Fox live action, Young Hercules, uh, hits from PBS, like Liberty Kids, and a Saturday morning action shows like Heavy Gear, Spider-Man, X-Men, Iron Man, Silver Sur I mean, I think this, the Avengers, Mortal Kombat, The Mask, Beast Machines, Transformers, Godzilla's, Gargoyles, Wing Commander Academy, and also you do uh, also Clifford the Big Red Dog. And then you just did an animation feature film, Star Wars, which is an American Korean underwater Lord of the Rings. So it's Sea Wars. Sea Wars. So, so which one would you want to um, share with us? Do you want to share a couple how you got on there and like maybe some of your favorites that you worked on? Oh boy, I <laughs> many, but let, let me let me just try to think. Um, Dinosaurs sort of gave me my start because I started doing them, and uh, and at Deke I met other story editors and. One one of the uh, one of the best shows I ever worked on was a, a primetime show called The Legend of Prince Valiant. Diane Dixon was the story editor, David Corbett the producer, and it was a primetime show. So the scripts were very adult, and they dealt with real issues, politics, uh, you know, uh, morality. People died, which was would never happen on a, on a kids show, and. I did 14 of them and it was serialized in many cases. So the I wrote the finale to the series and it was indeed a finale and it's, it paid off events that I set in motion two and a half years earlier with my first episode. So getting to write that kind of deep character driven, almost mini features was quite a treat and they had tremendous voice talent. The animation was a little rough, but the art direction was beautiful. And again, the voice talent was just was just superb. I was writing for great, great actors. And after that, the X-Men was starting up. And I told my agent, I love the X-Men. I've been a big fan. I want to work on that show. Oh, my god! So gosh. she called me back and said, I had to walk naked in the park, but I got you an interview. <laughs> So I had an interview not only with the story editor, but with uh, one of the execs at Fox Kids, who became a good friend, Sid Iwanda. And so I started working on X-Men, and one of my favorite episodes was doing an adaptation of the Dark Phoenix saga, which was this landmark comic book from Chris Claremont and John Byrne. And I wrote the adaptation to the finale of it, and it was one of the most fun things I, I ever wrote. And, and the story editors, the Lee Walls and, uh, on X-Men started to use me on a lot of other shows. And they also did the live action Young Hercules. So they called me for that. So 
excuse me, took a drink of water there. So, and I was lucky enough not to get typecast doing hard action adventure because I also did preschool shows like Clifford the Big Red Dog. I did those and, and then Spider-Man with a lady named Cynthia Harrison who um, started out uh, just kind of proofreading and looking over and story editing and comment on my scripts, which is very good. So uh, when I, when we were doing Spider-Man, I was doing several scripts at the same time and said, want to come in on this. And she turned out to be a great writer and we worked on a lot of other things together. Um, and another writer I worked with a lot was Lena Poussette. We did some features together and later some animation. So uh, those were all fun shows to work on. I love the superhero shows because I read the comics. <laughs> when my parents told me I was wasting my time reading comics, I didn't have the foresight to say, mother, I am doing research for my future career. <laughs> What was your favorite comic book when you were growing up? I had a lot of them. And, uh, you know, the X-Men was certainly high on the list. Yeah, the X-Men. What about, like, Iron Man? Because that's so huge right now, too, right? I, I, I worked on Iron Man, the animated show, but he wasn't one of my favorites. And I love doing kick-ass, strong, capable female characters. And I got known for that. So many times when they had the, the scripts that were centered around some of the female characters they'd given to me, which I was very flattered because I thought, well, wouldn't you want to give this to, you know, one of the women writers? But I'm glad that that kind of chauvinism or anti-chauvinism didn't exist because, frankly, I think anybody should write to their strengths anytime. Because if you say, well, only a woman should write a woman-centered script, then does that mean you're not going to let her write a male-centered script? Well, that would be absurd. There's women writers that write male characters that are just unbelievably wonderful. So I, I don't think gender writers should be pigeonholed. You, you should be able to write, you know, anything that, that appeals to your strengths. And believe me, there's some ladies I know that write such kick-ass action adventure with male heroes that I'm green with envy. <laughs> and, uh, so, you know, I, I, I got known for doing great female characters, which ultimately now I'm doing Lady Sherlock, my own character. Oh, yeah, um, your book. So I, I wrote the I wrote a lot of superheroes and actually write reading comics. I tended to write read more of the DC characters because I when I was really young, Marvel was just sort of starting up. And I didn't work on very many DC shows. I wanted to work on, you know, Batman and Justice League. I, I ended up working on, um, um, no, here we go. I'm, I'm having a senior moment, uh, <laughs> Static Shock, which was fun. Oh, but that was the only Warner DC show I worked on. Yeah. What, um, I remember um, auditioning for Mortal Kombat and they asked me as an actress, did I have like, I had no karate skills. My dad should have let me go to karate, but I, I just had none of those kind of skills. <laughs> and um, it, it did, um, how was working on like the Avengers? Did you have a good time with that one? That was an interesting show because that version of the Avengers, most of the big name Avengers had been licensed out. So they were kind of the second stringers. <laughs> the second stringers. <laughs> and, and on that show, they wanted to use uh, Kang. We use Kang the Conqueror as a villain, who I think is going to be in one of the movies. And there's a character called Falcon. Now, one of the one of the one of the sponsors of that show was a toy company, and they had a Falcon mobile. So I was ordered to put the Falcon mobile in the show, and I'm going. You know, this character's main power is that he flies, and you want me to have him in gridlock. 
<laughs> on the Sunset Strip, right? <laughs> right, Central Park. So anyway, so they said, yes, yes, we've got to use the toy. This happened a lot. So I have him drive up, drive the Falcon, drives up to Central Park. And the first thing I had Ken do is obliterate his car. Well, later they changed it. And I don't think the Falcon Mobile ended up in the episode, but you did get a lot of that. Put the toys when in there. She, when I did Chira, which was sponsored by Mattel, they gave me, you know, this whole book of toys and said, you don't have to, but any of these toys you can work into the episode, we'd appreciate. Many times during the toy-driven era, you'd get show Bibles that would be 10 pages of characters and a 20-page toy catalog. <laughs> and and you know, try to work it. There, there was a show called um, Spiral Zone or Spiral Force, I forget. And because they wanted to have action figures, they wanted every character in every act. So you had every act about, you know, 10 good guys, 10 bad guys, just simply ridiculous oh my God. Absurd, uh, story demands from, from the toy companies. Because these shows were ultimately long commercials for toys. <laughs> 10 characters and 10 toys. Like, everybody was talking at once, right? <laughs> oh, yeah just keeping track of them or giving them something to do. Plus, I'm sure the animators hated it. All the pencil mileage of all these guys. Oh, wow. And uh, and what was your favorite toy to add in? Do you have a couple of favorite toys? Like, what is it, bows and arrows? Or like, you know, uh, a no, rolling not, pin? Not really. Not really. I, I, I didn't have any favorite toys. And, and I never, the, the only time I ever bought the toy was, I worked on a terrific show called Exosquad. Oh. And uh, and that, that one was so much fun. Again, it was it was much more adult in nature. It was like an outer space war series. And the Lee Walls were doing it with Mark and Mike Edens. And and what they do is they worked out all the stories. So you got basically the, you know, a, a, a description of what the story would be. And you just went right to script. You didn't do an outline. And because I had a lot of historical and military knowledge, they loved my scripts. And for the last one, they didn't even work out the story. They just said, well, here's the basic setup. Just do what you want. <laughs> That's nice, and, right? And it was such a fun show to work on. So I did buy one of those toys. Oh, and, and, and like, what about like when you're writing like your superheroes and they said, um, put this toy in for this character. Did you have like a like a, a favorite toy character that you wrote about? Like, I don't know if you had an arrow, bow and arrow or a pin, pin that shoots ink or something. <laughs> no, no, nothing, nothing like that. When you had characters with weapons, usually the weapons, you know, were established from the comic book. And, and also, you know, you, you, you just try to be consistent. I teach a class, a writing class at UCLA. And when I get in, and it, it's a class, it's basically, it's, it's a class supposedly on teaching writing animation, but 90% of it is writing, 10% of the specifics for animation because writing is writing. So, you know, you have to be consistent with powers. That's the main thing. Consistent you with the powers. Have, you can't have Cyclops from the X-Men cutting through a bank vault in one scene with his beam and not be able to get through a wall with his beam in another. That it makes sense. And I remember the first season of Supergirl, the live action series. Mm -hmm. You know, in one episode, she'd lift a million ton spaceship into orbit. And then in the next episode, she'd be trapped in quicksand. <laughs> I mean, a lot of times when they don't use writers that are familiar with the genres, you get this. I remember there's a 
there was a show called Lois and Clark and uh, Superman and Lois are getting married. He says Clark Kent and a guy comes in with a gun or a bomb and they don't know what to do. And I'm saying, this is so stupid. He'd use his x-ray vision and just melt the thing. <laughs> or move at super speed when no one could see him and take it away. But apparently the writers weren't used to you know, superheroes. So they, they didn't go there. And you had a situation that would be fine for a non-superhero, but not, not so dangerous for someone like Superman. And Superman, I've never written for him, but I know people who have. He's a damn tough character to write for because he's so powerful. <laughs> it's hard to get this guy in trouble. But that old kryptonite, like, uh, I get migraines. So I, because, oh, my kryptonite's giving me a migraine. And that's called the internet, like, Wi-Fi zapping you in your eyes. <laughs> but, I mean, you, you don't want to use kryptonite every episode. You don't want to have every, you know, you know, little thug holding up a liquor store suddenly whipping out kryptonite to stop <laughs> Superman. It gets to be silly. So, so I guess the main silly thing is why the thug is working in Metropolis to begin with. You know, why doesn't he move to Gotham City? I'll rob during the daytime when Batman's not around. <laughs> I, I I'm gonna watch your show. Like we should have the adult version where it just doesn't make any sense, and everyone just can eat popcorn and like play like bingo. Like every time like um they use kryptonite, okay, you're using kryptonite again. Eat popcorn, or, or are you allowed to say have a shot? <laughs> so you have to be careful when doing a superhero show to keep the powers consistent. And also the best the best superheroes are the ones whose powers are limited so you can get them in trouble. So it's not easy for them to get out of situations. Yeah, like getting the rules of the world or the rules of the magic. Yeah, because um, I'm, I'm doing my first pitch deck and um, I had the good, uh, beautiful notes from Brad Birch of PJ Masks. He gave me like the, the all this beautiful notes to write a uh, story pitch deck for my animation um kid shows that i'm going to be doing my first pitch deck so it's really intimidating all the notes but i'm so grateful because like you said like you have to know the rules of the world and like like you said it's better for comedy or writing to have limited powers and that makes sense and you and you've definitely written like so many of our favorite shows the top uh superheroes You've done that and you've nailed it and you've done that extra extraordinarily well. Like you're so Thank brilliantly you. talented. And um I, I just look up to you, especially like you took a book as, as simple as like, you know, Clifford, the big red dog. Can you explain that? Because like um some stories like they seem really simple, but you were able to make episodes for it. So how do you go about like um like something so simple as a story like a, a big red dog goes to school? Like how do you start even okay. thinking about writing the story? Well, Clifford, of course, we weren't doing stories that were adaptations of any of the stories from the books. Uh, the show had a story editor. And, and for Clifford, I was working primarily with Cynthia Harrison, who fortunately had a little daughter. And, you know, having that kid point of view really, really helped. And and so we, we would just pitch stories. And writing preschool is, on one hand, very simple, and on the other hand, very hard because you have to keep it so simple that it's difficult. Because if you complicate it, the kids won't get it. So you have to write where a, a preschool kid is going to understand the story. And that doesn't mean you talk down to them because kid, nothing turns off kids faster than thinking they're being talked down to. I mean, the, the, their bullshit meter just goes into 
overdrive and they will tune you out. Don't, you know, they may not be experienced, but they're not stupid. So uh, we pitched stories and one of them, um, one, one of them that I loved, it, it, it involved, uh, Cindy's daughter was named Katie. So we had a little character named Kiki, who was this little baby puppy. And two of the other dogs had to babysit Kiki and were just exhausted by it. And, but they promised her something and they had to deliver on the promise, even though there was a huge temptation not to. So it was a great story about trying to keep this little kid in check and at the same time being in living up to a promise you made. Oh, that's really beautiful. And um, as Robert Service said, a promise made is a debt unpaid. Oh, I love that. And um, with that, we're going to invite everyone to come back to part two because we have so much more. Brooks Watchell, he has over 85 episodes of dramatic television. And we want to get to his directing and um, his documentaries for the History Channel. We want to get to his movie he just directed and his book. So please come back to part two. Thank you for listening. We'll, uh, we'll come back for part two.